well if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9. We're going to uh, continue our study in the life of Saul. This will actually, we I don't know how long we've been in chapter 9 so far. We've been in the, the life of the conversion and life of Saul now for, I don't know, four, five, six weeks or so. And this will be our last study in uh in the book of Saul for about two chapters and ten years. Um, no, it won't be ten years for the next two chapters. Um, I know you see three pages of notes this morning and you're like going, oh my goodness, we're going to be here forever. It will not be ten years. But the next time we see Saul, and he'll be Paul, the next time we see Paul, um, ten years of his life will have passed. So two chapters and ten years, and we will then come back to the person of Paul. But one of the things we've been looking at is we've looked at the conversion of Saul, and we've seen him be regenerated, saved, born again, converted. All things have become new. Um, but one of the, the interesting things about becoming a Christian is when one is born again, when one is converted, one might ask the question, well, now that I'm a Christian, what do I do now? I know when, when I became a believer, it, it wasn't in a church. It wasn't around a lot of people. In fact, I was in my room by myself. And that was certainly one of the questions I had. So now what? There were some things I knew that I had to do or some things I knew that I couldn't keep doing. But really, the idea of what do I do now was, was a question that came into my mind. And so as we were looking at the, at the life of Saul as a believer, Saul is now saved, and now we have to think, what's, what's he going to do? Saul has become a new creation. How does that new creation express himself? What, because what he is is a new creation, and what he does is going to flow out of being that new creation. So let's look. We... I noticed in our passage of text in chapter 9, verse 19 through 31, three things stand out as to what Saul does, what flows out of this new creation. And the first thing we covered last week, and the first thing we saw was that he joined with other believers. Um, I even went so far as to say Saul joined a church. But wherever he went, he engaged with other believers. When he was in Damascus, it makes a point. He joined with the believers in Damascus. When he left from Damascus and went to Jerusalem, he sought out believers and joined with them. So the first thing that Saul does after being born again, after becoming a Christian, is Saul joins with other believers. So that's what we saw last week. But two other things that I um, decided not to cover last week, but thought I'd split into two messages um, and I, and I want to look at those next two things. The next two things that, that Saul does is, number one, he proclaims God's word. He proclaims God, God's word. And what I'm going to do today is, um, so by way of preview, what I want to do today is talk about this proclamation of preaching. And, and I want to cover this in three big areas. I want to cover, number one, the centrality of preaching, the centrality of preaching. So um, we've covered this before, but I think it's important because it's so prominent in the book of Acts. That is, preaching is central. The second thing we want to do is, what does Saul teach? What does he preach? What's the content of his message? And I think we'll, we'll try to unpack, and I'll probably spend the bulk of my time dealing with the content of Saul's message. And then... Um, under this idea of proclamation or teaching, I want to deal with the manner. What is the manner under which that Saul preached? How did he preach? So the centrality of preaching, the content of preaching, and the manner of preaching. And then finally, the third thing I want to deal with is Saul is persecuted. So what now? Saul, is he joins with other believers. The second thing is he preaches God's word, and then he suffers. And let me be... Uh, Specific. He suffers for preaching the Word of God. Alright? So that's the direction we're going to go. Are we good? Alright. Let's read God's Word and then afterwards we'll, uh, we'll look in detail at this passage of text. Acts chapter 9. 
verses 19 through 31. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And... This is God's inerrant and holy, blessed word. I pray that it has, it bears fruit in our lives. So the first thing we see that Saul does after becoming a believer, he joins with disciples and he proclaims the gospel. And preaching is central. Preaching is central to the ministry of Saul, but we should not be surprised about that. We see the centrality of preaching um, in the ministry of Saul and in the early um, Life of Saul in verse 20 and verse 22, verse 27 and verse 28, we, saw, we see Saul preaching, proclaiming the gospel. As I said, this is not the first time we see this in this particular, in, in the book of Acts. And the primacy of preaching, that even at Pentecost and at the healing of the lame man and when the disciples were on trial and when they were freed from being on trial and Stephen and Philip, and what did they do? They proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they did. When they healed a lame man, they didn't get up and start preaching about the healing. They ended up preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they were on trial, they didn't try to defend themselves. They preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preaching is primary to the early church. But we shouldn't be surprised to hear this because this is what Jesus did. Jesus, in Luke's first recorded sermon by Jesus, I don't think it was his first sermon, but it's certainly the first sermon that Luke records, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth and they give him the scroll of Isaiah and he opens the scroll and he, it talks about how um, one is going to come who's going to preach good news to the poor and release to the captives and he puts the scroll down and he sits down, which is the place the preacher took. The preachers didn't stand, they sat. So when he sat, he's preaching. And he says this, Today, this has been fulfilled in your midst. And then he goes about healing and, and, uh, and, and casting out devils. So Jesus is known for his preaching. In fact, he's going around doing miracles and doing great things. And people want him to stay. And he says, don't you know I have to go to other towns as well because I need to preach there also. I'm going to other towns. Why? I need to preach the gospel other places. And we see this throughout um, the gospels, how Jesus prioritized preaching. So, just a quick summary of this centrality or the priority of preaching is this, that God by his own sovereign design has determined that through the foolishness of preaching, people would be saved. Do not ask me why God chose the foolishness of preaching would be the means by which people to save. He did not consult me. I am not his advisor. But for whatever reasons, God has chosen preaching as the means by which people would come to know him and call upon his name. 
And so there is a central place of preaching in the ministry of Saul. There is a central place of preaching in this ministry. We didn't just make it up. It's not like I just like to talk for a long period of time. And so we're going to make preaching the priority or a priority. It is because we see it throughout Scripture. But really what we want to spend our time dealing with is what did Saul teach? What was the content of his preaching? What was the content of Saul's message? That's really going to be where I want to spend the bulk of my time, the content of Saul's preaching. Let me begin by telling you what it is not. So we can eliminate that, we can move that to the side, we can clear the table of all that his preaching was not, we can clear the table so that we can get into what is the content. So here's what it is not. Saul's preaching, and the disciples as well, but Saul's preaching, because we're talking about Saul. Saul's preaching is not centered around the miracle on the road to Damascus. Don't you find that interesting? That his, his preaching is not centered on the fact that he had this vision. Or it's not on the fact that he was blind and now he can see. It is not on those things. This is consistent with other messages in the book of Acts. For in the book of Acts, remember on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and people began to speak in other languages. And do you remember what the sermon was after that? It had nothing to do with now, let's talk about you receiving the ability to speak in other languages. It was on the person of Jesus Christ and how to have salvation in his name. So my purpose today is not to discuss whether or not people still have that special gift to speak in other languages or not. Whether that gift has ceased or continues, that's not the issue here. At least that's not on the table this morning. What's on the table is the content of their preaching was not on that miraculous thing, but rather it, it brought about an opportunity to proclaim that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and you can have forgiveness in his name. We see this. As well, when they healed, the, when James or Peter and John healed the, the lame man um, and he was able to walk. And you will notice that they did not call for a healing ministry. They did not say, everybody come forward and get healed now. What did they do? They preached Jesus Christ, whom you put to death, risen from the dead, and there is salvation in no other name under heaven on which, by which men may be saved. That is the message. We see this throughout, um, we see this throughout the, the book of Acts. So wh- whatever miracles were experienced, what ends up happening is they all pale in comparison to the miracle of salvation that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So what it is, what the content of Paul's message is not so much upon his, the fact that he is performing miracles. Generally, the content of Saul's message is that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, and that and he preached in the name of the Lord. So let's talk specifically about what Saul taught. And I want us to give our attention to this very interesting statement. Up in verse 22, where it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The first thing we should point out is that Saul is increasing in strength. Well, I found that interesting because Saul's increasing in strength, but I think we can all agree and conclude that Saul's not, I don't know, he's not lifting weights, building muscle, he's not getting bigger biceps or a six-pack abs. That's not what he's doing. He's increasing in wisdom and influence. I think that's the idea behind he's increasing in strength. It's not so much that he is becoming physically stronger, but he's becoming wiser, a better influencer. That was interesting to me. In other words, we can, Saul improved. Saul got better at influencing people 
for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about that? I, I don't know. I always just think that Saul gets converted and he's just automatically like at the pinnacle of his abilities. But it says, no, he grew in strength. He got better at it. So he can, increases in strength and he confounds the Jews who lived in Damascus basically baffled them. They had no argument. This is what Jesus said would happen. I'm going to bring you and before people and I'm going to give you a spirit so that you will confound the people and they'll have no answer for you. And this is exactly what he's doing. He's confounding the people. And he does so by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And I really kind of want to go off on this word. Proving that Jesus is the, is the Christ. First of all, this is exactly what Jesus did. He proved that he was the Christ. I, I mentioned earlier Luke chapter 4, right? He's, he reads from the, the, the prophet Isaiah. He sits down and he says, Today this, has been, this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. Well, anybody can say that. I can get up here and tell you all sorts of I can get up and say, I'm the Christ. Jesus then goes out and he heals the sick and he casts out demons and he raises the dead. He proves what he says. So he, he, he proves his position. He says, I'm Messiah and let me prove it to you. I love in Matthew chapter 8, um, Matthew chapter 8, by the way, comes right after Matthew chapter 7. Not sure if you're aware of that, but you can look it up. And Matthew chapter 7 is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people are amazed and they're saying, wow, this guy speaks with authority. He's not like the other rabbis. He speaks with an authority. We've never heard anybody speak like this. And in that sermon, Jesus made bold claims. He spoke as God made huge claims. Claims like, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you. Nobody can make that statement. Nobody can say, you've heard it said, don't murder. Who said that? God. Remember, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, don't murder. God said it. And Jesus turns around and says, but I say to you. Are you kidding me? That's, a, that's an amazing statement. Jesus is basically saying, I'm God and I have the right to clarify what I have spoken. Well, lots of people can make bold claims. And then what does Jesus do? He goes about, he raises the dead, he heals the sick, he casts out demons and he calms the storms. In other words, Jesus makes these bold claims and then he says, I have authority over sickness and death. I have authority over demonic powers and I have authority over nature itself. I am who I say I am. So Jesus proves that he is who he says he is. Paul now is going to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. So let's talk about this little word prove. Because it's an interesting word. It means to unite. It means to bring together and draw a conclusion. It has the idea of taking something and bringing it together. Taking two pieces and putting them together and then drawing a conclusion. I think this is interesting. This is what Paul does. He takes two things and brings them together and draws a conclusion. He is going, so we have to ask then, what's he putting together? What's he uniting? Let me inform you what he is uniting. This is the way Paul taught. This is the way the early sermons in the book of Acts worked. And that is, they took the Old Testament and brought it and showed that the old, that Jesus fulfilled all of the promises and purposes that were made in the Old Testament and that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is Lord. So he draws from the Old Testament put together the promises and fulfillment regarding God's Messiah and he confounds the Jews and they're going, we got no answer for this. That is rock solid. We can't defeat it. There's nothing we can say about it. Well, I don't know the exact sermon that Saul preached in these synagogues, but I do want to draw together. I want to prove that Jesus is the Christ. 
I want to bring those two things together today. I want us to see that connection between what God promised in the Old Testament and what God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Promise and fulfillment brought together in one complete story. The connection between promise and fulfillment. That's where I want to go. So, the promise begins in the words of God's curse after the fall in the garden. So we don't need to go very far to begin to see God's promise. And where do we go? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is really the place we need to go. It's so important, I believe. I even put it up on the screen for you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And um, if you are kids, you probably, if you have a yellow sheet, you probably need to pay attention to this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 goes like this. If you've been in this church very long, you've heard this referred to many times. This is the curse. This is the curse that God spoke to the serpent. And this is what he said. I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from the very beginning, the man and the woman had every right to expect that they would die. But God curses the snake. And you will note how God creates a division. He creates this opposition between his people, the seed of the woman and Satan's people, the seed of the serpent. God creates a division, an opposition between his people, whom he refers to as the seed of the woman and Satan's people who are the seed of the serpent. The promise is that one day, the seed of the woman, a son will be born who will defeat Satan and deliver people from their sins. That's the promise. One day, one day, from this woman is going to come a son who is going to defeat the serpent who has brought this calamity into the world. That's what's going to happen. So who is the seed of the woman? So we see these two sides. We see two sides of this promise. The one side is that the the serpent will strike the seed of the woman, yet he, the seed of the woman, will triumph over the seed of the serpent. Are you with me so far? Okay. Okay. Because at the birth of Cain, we have perhaps what might be the fulfillment of that promise. And I think Adam and Eve thought that maybe Cain was the, the answer to the promise. In chapter 4, verse 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Is he the promised seed? Is he the one? Is this going to be the one who destroys the work of the serpent while Cain ends up murdering Abel? But God preserves Adam's line. He does it through the, per, uh, through the son named Seth. And Seth becomes the promised line. He becomes the line through which Messiah will come. And God has preserved the line of Seth. Sin ravages mankind. And man is deserving of God's judgment. But God's judgment, or God's promise remains. He, he promises to bring about a Savior. And sin is ravaging the earth. But God's promise has gone nowhere. And He preserves Noah, and He preserves Noah's family through the flood. I think um, Noah was the expected Savior. People, Lamech, in chapter, Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, expresses, maybe this is the one. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This may be the one. And God has favor on him, and God brings him through the flood, and Noah fails. generation later, the rivalry continues through the sons of Isaac. I'm sorry, let me 
back up. <clears throat> Generations pass. And after Noah repopulates the earth, centuries pass, and humanity once again returns to its former position. It returns to pre-flood conditions. But God has not forgotten his promise. God continues to remember his promise and he brings forth um, a man by the name of Abraham and he makes a promise that in you all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. In you, the promise is going to be fulfilled but the serpent rises and seeks to destroy the promise in Abraham who by his own power, Abraham in his own power, seeks to have a child by the slave woman Hagar in an attempt to short-circuit God's promise, in an act of utter unbelief. He does not believe God, and instead he brings forth another seed, another son. And God says, thank you very much, Abraham. I do not need your help. And God keeps his promise and brings forth a child through a barren couple. So Abraham is raised. In you, I'm going to bring forth my son. Abraham fails. Adam failed. Noah failed. Abraham failed. But God has not failed and God has not forgotten his promise. And as I said, a generation later, rivalry continues. It goes through Isaac's sons. Esau tries to destroy Jacob, who is the chosen seed. And the Lord preserves him. Jacob has 12 sons. It looks like that promise of a great nation made to Abraham is being fulfilled, but jealousy and strife challenge the promise. There is the attempted murder on Joseph, the promised seed. Imprisonment and famine that threatens the entire family, but God delivers them. The seed of the serpent appears again as the descendants of Jacob are enslaved, and in order to destroy Jacob's sons, Pharaoh orders the the annihilation and the slaughter of every male child. I want all the males killed. I do not want this seed to continue. But God saves Moses and spares Moses. God is faithful and preserves Moses out of this destructive command. And God makes a covenant with Moses. And he says, if you will keep my commandments. I will be your God and you will be my people. The people fail. Moses sins against God. Moses fails. Rebellion begins immediately, but God keeps his promise. God keeps his promise. He raises up Joshua. And Joshua fails and Israel continues to rebel against God. The nation rejects God as their king and they seek other, other kings and like other nations. But God provides David, the promised one, who will be like a son to him. But the serpent seeks to destroy this son. He seeks to destroy him through Saul and then seeks to destroy him through Absalom. But the seed survives. And God extends his promise by assuring that David will always have an heir on the throne, that he would have a son who's going to rule in righteousness, that he will be the promised seed to rule and deliver. But as you know, David fails. David, the man after God's own heart, God's son, fails. How about Solomon? Maybe he's the guy. Solomon does good for about a week. He proves unfaithful. Judgment ensues, and pretty soon the kingdom's divided. Solomon's failed. So we see the kingdom divided. There's the northern kingdom. They get progressively worse and worse, and they're pretty soon exiled, um, and they never return from exile. The south and the, the southern kingdom, the conditions aren't that much better, but eventually they're exiled. And in their exile, God speaks forth through the prophets. And there are many promises that God makes about the coming seed. But I think the one we should probably look at it is one we read a little bit earlier, but it does stand out in Isaiah chapter 11. We see that a shoot from the line of Jesse, that was David's father, a shoot from the line of Jesse will come. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch. His roots shall bear fruit. And he, this 
this descendant of Jesse, will have the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. He will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. There's still a promise. There's still the seed to come whom the spirit of the Lord will be upon and he will have wisdom and righteous judgment and he will bring peace and he will bring forth justice. And when that king of Jesse arrives, he will produce a new exodus. Not an exodus out of the land of Egypt into uh, the land of Israel, but uh, out of the bondage of slavery to sin to a new Eden that God has created. That one's coming. The, uh, the prophets are speaking about this. Well, many years pass. The prophets all die. God delivers his people out of bondage. And then one day, after many years, the prophetic voice of God had been silent. And then in Bethlehem, one night, a boy is born in the city of David. Angels attend his birth. Kings come from afar to worship him. Is he the promised Messiah? Could this be the one? Oh, but the serpent appears again. And he slaughters more innocent boys. Slays them all, seeking to destroy the promised seed. But Jesus is preserved. And then we see in the life of Jesus, his words, his authority, he heals the sick, he overcomes the forces of hell. Is God fulfilling his promise? And at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Will this son fail? Will, this, will he fail like Moses and Solomon and David and Abraham? Will he fail like them? Will the serpent destroy him? He seems to be the right one. And then, after God declares that this is my beloved son and demonstrating that he is um, come from God, the serpent seems again to gain the upper hand. The religious leaders reject this Jesus. They compel the Roman authorities to crucify him. And in the cold, dark tomb, the promise appears to fail. We thought he was the one. We thought this was the one. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. The promise has been kept. He has defeated death by offering himself as the final sacrificial lamb. Jesus has crushed the power of Satan. Jesus has freed his people from bondage and through his resurrection has guaranteed new life. The kingdom has come. Jesus is the seed. He has crushed the serpent's head. The serpent bruised him on the heel, inflicted a temporal wound, but Jesus overcame that temporal wound, rose from the dead. He is the promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of everything that began back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So just a brief summary. Saul unites these promises in Christ, who is the promised seed of the woman. He is the Christ. He is the one whom you've been waiting. He's the one that the prophets spoke about. He's the one that God promised back in Genesis. He's the one whom David looked forward to. He is the perfect son of David. He is the one through whom the promises of Abraham will be will be fulfilled. He is the one through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. He is the promise Messiah. He is the Christ for whom you've been waiting. And now that he has come and done his work, redemption has come as well, and you can have life in his name. This is Saul uniting what was spoken in the Old Testament and showing its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. God has kept his promise. God has done what God said he would do. God has kept his promise. Well, mostly. Because see, there's still a day. There's still a promise. There's still a promised day. And it's one that we look for. There is still a day that we look forward to. The day when the trumpet will sound and Christ will be revealed from heaven and He will judge the wicked and He will judge the righteous and He will provide everlasting life and we will forever be with Him. Folks, the promise is still good. God has not forgotten His promise. In Christ, all of those promises in the Old Testament have been, been fulfilled. 
for Saul proclaims in the synagogues that Jesus is the Christ. He does it by uniting Old Testament and New Testament, Old Testament to the person of Christ. I don't know exactly how he did it, but I did make an attempt to show how God's promise from Genesis chapter 3 flow all the way through and they find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. It was a brief story. It was quick. We can spend months just talking about all of those promises, but you can see how that line, that seed continues and Satan keeps trying to destroy it, keeps trying to destroy it and God keeps preserving it and he fulfills it in Jesus Christ. So we've looked at two ways, two, two characteristics of Saul's preaching. We've looked, first of all, at the, um, the centrality of his preaching. It was central to his life. We've seen briefly the content. I do want to make a mention of the manner in which he preached. And we see this uh, repeated over and over again in the book of a- or in this passage, and that is Saul preached boldly. And that really struck me. Saul preached boldly. And this will be tied to the next point of, of persecution. But I, I, Saul preached like he had nothing to lose. What does it mean to preach boldly? I don't think preaching boldly means preaching loud. I mean, I guess you could preach loud and it could be bold, but boldness does not is not. E- Equivalent to volume. That's not boldness. Boldness seems to be preaching and not being concerned what everybody else is going to think. It is declaring the truth because it is the truth. Even if everybody has a problem with it, Paul speaks boldly. Paul preaches as though he has nothing to lose. And tied to this is Saul's persecution. That is, Saul is persecuted. Saul suffers for the fact that he preaches boldly. The truth of God's word, as Saul preaches, confronts hard and unregenerate hearts. And as I was thinking of this, I thought, is it Newton's law that says for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction? I think that's Newton's law. And I thought about that. Saul preaches, that's That's the action. And there's an equal and opposite reaction. And one of them is that a stony, cold heart is shattered. And men fall to their knees and call upon the name of the Lord. That would be one of the reactions. The other reaction is the cold, hard, stony heart is not shattered. Then they have to resist and push back and seek to silence the message. But those are the two responses. The two responses to the preaching of truth to an unregenerate heart is number one, the people break and fall on their knees and say, what shall we do? The other is, I will not stand for the truth and I need to silence it. And Saul has both, experiences both. But we see over and over again how Saul is chased from one place to the next, how he is persecuted and he suffers for the cause of Christ. Saul has nothing to lose. But I don't want to just leave you here as though Saul is just some fatalist going, well, I got nothing to lose, so I can just do whatever I want. Saul has nothing to lose because Saul has already gained everything. I think that's where I want to take you. Saul has nothing to lose because Saul has gained everything. Saul does not care about his reputation, not because he's some sort of person who enjoys being defamed, He understands whose he is. You can defame me all you want, but I am a child of the Most High God. I am a son redeemed and made whole and brought into the kingdom and brought into the family of God, adopted by God. That's who I am. I got nothing to lose, not because I'm just some person who enjoys being suffering indignities. No, I don't mind suffering your indignities because I know the truth of who I am. Saul says, you can defame me all you want. I'm going to keep on preaching because I know what I have. What are you going to do? Take my reputation? I have no reputation. I'm a slave to Christ. 
What are you going to do? Take my job? What's that going to do? That means nothing to me. I have sacrificed everything for the cause of Christ. And if you take my job and I starve and never eat another meal and die of starvation in the gutter, Christ is Lord and I will be His forever and ever. you got nothing on me. What are you going to do? Take my life? Really? That's all you can do? Take my life? For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of anything that you can do to me. I've lost everything because I have gained much more. He truly understands the parable of the pearl of great price and the treasure in the field. He said, I sold the field. And I, by selling the field, I became the wealthiest person in the world because I gained the treasure that was in the field. I sold everything I had to gain that one pearl. I don't care what I had. Everything I had, my, my job, my reputation, everything to gain that one pearl that is of such great value. I've sold everything. I've, I consider everything a loss and rubbish. Why? Because what I've gained in return is Jesus Christ. you got nothing. I can preach boldly because you can't take anything from me. Nothing. And as I was thinking of this this week, Two very recent incidences came to my mind. It's just these two recent ones, but it's been trending for a while, and that is what we have, what is being called or or labeled as deconversion stories. And usually, it's by very famous Christians. Deconversion stories that they have, um, they they are celebrity leaders in the Christian realm. Music leaders and pastors and teachers and authors and conference speakers and people who have gained a great following who are now saying, I no longer follow the Christian faith. I don't know their motives. I don't know why they did what they did. Well, I do, but they were never his. But I can't think that there is that there is some disconnect. But there is some relationship with the fact that people, not just famous people, they're in the news, but it's happening daily in our churches. As we capitulate to the culture, as we bow down to the culture, and as Christians become disfavored, I think one great challenge will be able will be to stand as a minority culture in the midst of people who say, I can't believe that you are such a hateful, bigoted racist. Because you believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. And you are a racist bigot for that. And, peop- and you will lose your job. And you will lose your social standing. And you will lose everything. You may even lose your property. I know it's not there, but I can see as time goes along and before long, folks, if you're sitting in this church this morning and you are a Christian, you are on the outs and becoming more on the outs with culture. And I fear that one of our great challenges is to capitulate to the culture. And as I read these deconversion stories, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing people saying, well, you know what? I just can't hold that God has a standard of truth that is antithetical to what the culture is saying. And they side with the culture. See, when they became famous, they were cool and they were hip and they were trending and they were accepted and they aren't anymore because their beliefs are not cool and they are not hip and they do not trend. And so they end up capitulating to the culture and abandoning Christ who is Lord of all. I believe that today one of the great things that we are 
going to have to learn to do is to stand and to stand against the culture. Folks, being a Christian no longer makes you a favored class. There was a time, there was a day that to be a Christian in this culture and gave you great privilege. It meant that you had, a, you could make connections with business, you could have friends in your neighborhood, you might get the promotion at work, there were, you had numerous benefits to being a Christian. Those days are waning, perhaps they're gone. Where to be a Christian, those privileges will no longer be granted to us. Will we stand? Will we stand? Saul says, I got nothing to lose. What are you going to do? Are you going to take my job? Are you going to take my home? I built tents. I'll make a tent. You're going to take the land I sleep on? You're going to take my life? I got nothing to lose. I've gained Christ. Saul could preach boldly. He did not capitulate to the culture because he didn't have anything to lose because he's already gained everything. There's nothing left to give me. And so, I believe it is necessary for our church, for this church, to help us to be people who stand strong. And I pray that the job of the leaders and the elders of this church is to feed the church. Not, I think to feed the church the self-help pablum of narcissistic vanity is spiritual malpractice. For me, just to say, well, you can... You can feel good about yourself and you can dream big and you can be whoever you want to be and here are the three steps taken out of context from various passages in the Bible on how to do that. I think is spiritual malpractice. But to teach the inerrant, holy word of God to equip you with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who you are as a believer in Christ will give us the strength to stand in these upcoming uncertain days. One of the ways we're doing this is I didn't plan this, but one of the we're talking on Sunday mornings about suffering. <laughs> Today we talked about how suffering is a gift from God. Did you ever think about that? How many of you ever considered suffering a gift? It is. It's God's gift. And he uses it well. I'll give you the notes if you want them. But when Saul preaches boldly, Saul preaches boldly because he also lives in a culture where being a Christian does not benefit him at all. Being a Christian did not benefit Saul one bit. He didn't get new jobs because of it. He didn't increase his social standing. He didn't become anything. It didn't help him. He preached boldly because he already had everything there was. And so, as a church, we are not cool. We are not hip. We are not trending. And so I guess when it becomes uncool and unhip and untrending to be a church, it won't be a surprise to us because we never were. <laughs> I pray, though, that we are people who can stand. Stand in the face of this culture and preach boldly, regardless of what they say. So Paul became a Christian. He joined with other disciples. That was the first thing he did, was he joined with other believers. Wherever he went, he joined with believers. That is, I believe, one of the things that Christians do. They join together with other believers. Saul joined a church. Second thing, Saul made preaching central, and Saul suffered for all of those things. I do want us to Look at how this passage about the life of Saul ends. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. How did they multiply? They multiplied by walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Not through plans and programs, not through great marketing skills, not through a great social media person. They grew and they multiplied 
because they walked in awe of God and the assurance of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be a church that walks. We are always in awe of what God is doing. And we are comforted by the fact that the Holy Spirit is in us and he calls us children. And because of the Holy Spirit in us, we can say, Abba, Father. What a great comfort that is. When somebody is calling us names and maliciously maligning us, we can say, Abba, Father, God's my dad. Do what you want. God's my dad. You can't take my life. You can't take anything from me. I already have everything. So I'll conclude with this. The convert. Let me just repeat myself, I guess. The convert. What does it, what's next? So Saul is converted. He's born again. He's made a new crea- creation. What's next for the new creation? How does a new creation expect? Um, uh, how does a new creation um, reflect being a new creation? Number one joins with other disciples. So I pray that as we go from here during the week, man, call one another. Invite one another out to dinner. See about one another. Engage with one another. Be about joining with the disciples and then join together on Sunday mornings as we worship. First thing, join with other disciples. Second thing that a new creation does is shares the gospel. Shares the gospel. Shares the gospel promise with boldness. Don't be surprised if when we share the gospel um, promise with boldness that some people push back. But don't forget this. The gospel does set, still saves. And the gospel will shatter cold, dark hearts. And people will fall on their knees and call upon the name of the Lord because we share the gospel with boldness. And by that, God is glorified and honored. And the church will multiply. Father, we come before you this morning with thanksgiving and with praise. We recognize that you are the Lord of all. And so have mercy upon us this day and help us, Father God, to live as new creations, proclaiming the gospel with boldness, proving that Jesus is the Christ, knowing our scriptures backwards and forwards, Lord God, being filled with your spirit, knowing that you are our Father, knowing that we've already gained everything, that we have everything, And that we would not bow down to the direction culture is going. And unless, Lord, you intervene by some great revival and miraculous work, Lord God, we are moving towards a a nation and a people and a group that despises your name and hates those who, who love you. I pray, Father God, that in those days we are strong and we live for you, and we follow after you no matter what. Lord, we will need your strength to do that. But until then, we'll preach boldly and proclaim boldly that Jesus is the Christ and redemption is in his name. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.